Welcome to Coach House Talks. Well, we've got there. We're finally at Revelation. Yippee! (laughs) I've titled this, The Big Picture Concludes, Do Not Be Afraid. And there's good reason for saying that. So we're going to do Revelation over a couple of weeks. I'm doing it this week, and Derek Lindley will be bringing the part two next week. Um, So I'm going to deal with only the first few chapters uh, that deals with the letters to the churches. So let's be very clear right from the outset as we start to look at Revelation that the beginning and the end of Revelation is who? Jesus. The entire book is Jesus' revelation given to us. And it's the faithful culmination of all of the promises made since the day that Adam and Eve failed in their task to obey God and live in peace with him forever. Eternal rest was exchanged for death and chaos. But into this chaos came peace, grace and forgiveness. The means by which not only man could be restored to God, and the means by which, but the means by which a fractured heaven, a decaying earth, and an eternal enemy could all be dealt with. And a full restoration and order recreated as it was intended at the very beginning. This is the end of the plan that we have been tracking since we began Genesis way back in January. This is just the end of the story. The seventh day of creation was without end, where God and his creation dwell in peace and relationship forever. That was the intention. But we know the story. We know that sin crept in. And so it becomes the promise of revelation as well. And it all centers on Jesus. When Jesus walked on the stormy waters of Lake Galilee, or he awoke from his sleep in the fisherman's boat in the storm, his proclamations brought calm to the chaos. Matthew 14, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, because I am here. See, Revelation might appear to be chaos and disorder, and we've probably all heard lots of stories, and we've all tried to work things out, but Jesus brings his peace and speaks to us. In Revelation 1, verse 7, Jesus tells us, do not be afraid. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Revelation. So, let's set the context for what is about to follow. It's AD 95. The temple has been destroyed in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem. So we know about the temple that was rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra. Well, it was destroyed in 70 AD, flattened by the Romans. And Roman rule had its grip on the world. The latest emperor, Domitian, encouraged Roman imperial worship okay you need to know this because it sets the background for everything else that is to come 
And this mixed Roman ideas with Greek cults worship. He carried on the decree that Roman emperors should be worshipped as God. Okay, so this is the background of everything that's going on. Following the infamous Nero that we've all heard about, the practice of persecution of Christians became totally widespread. Christians were seen to be anti-Roman as they refused to worship the emperor as God. And in fact, when Rome had a great fire going through it in 60 AD, I think, the Romans conveniently blamed that on the Christians. And so persecution was totally widespread. We're supposed to worship the Roman emperor as God. And yet we know that the first commandment is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Everything is supposed to be centered there. So anybody that tells you to put it elsewhere is going against God's word. So as we've seen before with Daniel's struggles with the Babylonians and the Persians back in the Old Testament, God speaks to his people during these times. Daniel's vision spoke out in a dark time of captivity for God's people and Revelation speaks directly into the time of persecution and worship of false gods that the Christians and believers were being forced to do. Now, we will look this morning at the seven churches addressed by Jesus at the beginning of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Now, these seven churches are important because, hear me, they are real churches. Real churches that are existing during all of this chaos that's going on from the Roman rule. They were all in Asia which is our modern-day Turkey, so if you, that's kind of Turkey there. And, it was, they, and Turkey is to the east of the Roman Empire. So remember, all this Greek culture comes in from the eastern side of the Roman Empire. So it's at its worst, this Greek culture of worshipping gods and, and deities and entities and Roman Empire worship of the emperor as God had its grip here. Okay, this is where it's at its worst. And it was due to this extensive Greek underpinnings. The Greeks have got a lot to answer for. All of the cities where we find the churches were famed for temples to Greek gods. And this led to the revering of the Roman emperor and elevation of godlike status and worship. Every single one of these places where God placed his church had a temple that was worshipping somebody or something else. This should be borne in mind as we tackle the content of Revelation. It's the backdrop for everything that will follow. But more importantly, perhaps, we must see the significance of what bookends all of these letters. So these letters are given to the church. They're Jesus' letters to the churches, but they are bookended with some very important stuff. We've seen, as we've looked at the letters in the New Testament, that the believers were being urged to have faith and belief that Jesus' death and resurrection was the requirement for eternal and restored relationship with God. In Paul's words, everything else is counted as rubbish. It is temporal and unfulfilling. 
This should also remind us of Solomon's words in the Old Testament. Everything without God is meaningless. First, in Revelation, we are reminded who this book is about. Revelation 1, verse 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must take place. Soon. This is the final act, and in order to bring about an end to everything that has aligned itself against God, it must take place. God is not going to let worship of anything other than him carry on forever. He is not going to let man live in his state of sin forever. There is payment and consequence for turning your back on God. Now, I know that God is a God of grace and love, and that's why we sit here today. But he is also coming back to judge this world. And only if we have aligned ourselves with God through Jesus are we going to escape. Much of what the seven churches in Asia once faced, we too now face. Whether it's the seductive pull of a secular culture or strong opposition from the same culture, the foundation of our hope lies not in our own circumstances, but in God's faithfulness to speak and act in Christ, including the promise to one day make all things new. It's, in, it's really important to remind ourselves that the vision was given to all of God's people, i.e. his servants. God is not silent when things are going against his people. He cares about what's happening. He cares what's happening to his people. And he does something about it. It's therefore no surprise that the greatest encouragement comes from a view of Jesus' sovereignty and his power as he gives these instructions to the churches. This is the bookend. Before these letters, we have a fantastic vision of Jesus. And it is followed immediately by Jesus in heaven. He is the center, the beginning and the end, and the all of Revelation. So Revelation 1 verses 12 to 17 gives us this introduction. So John, who this revelation was given to when he was in exile in Patmos, he says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I was dead. And it's following this amazing meeting with Jesus that the familiar refrain occurs. Don't be afraid, he said. Why? Well, Revelation verses 17 and 18 tells us 
Because Jesus declares, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. And we must hold on to this central statement. Everything that follows should not distress or worry. I have it under control, says Jesus. And the truth is, Jesus still does. Go and have a look at how many times in the Gospels Jesus tells his followers, do not be afraid. Because Jesus knows what we are going to go through or what we will escape from. He knows the beginning and the end. So he says to his people, he declares to his people, do not be afraid. These seven real churches needed encouragement. But they needed warnings at the same time to reinforce their faith and to turn them from their failings. Now these churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea would have formed a circular route to deliver these letters. They're in order of a circle. Okay, so we start, so Patmos is over here, just to be helpful. Patmos is down here. Ephesus is the first church in line, and off it goes round in a circle to Laodicea at the end. So they're in order. It's a circular route to deliver these letters. It's also the first occurrence that we have of a repeating theme in Revelation. The number seven. Seven churches. Seven lampstands. Seven, and if you read all the way through, I'm sure it'll come into next week. Seven this, seven that, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven, 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 seven. Okay, get the picture. How many days of creation? Seven. On the seventh day, God rested. Okay, so it's all about what God is fulfilling right from the very beginning. Seven relates to completeness or fullness. So it's well known in the kind of Hebrew culture and that numbers relate to things. Seven is the complete, the number of completeness or fullness, which is often referred to as God's number. Because he is complete. He holds everything. So there weren't just seven churches in Asia. Okay, so we need to get that in our thinking. There wasn't just these seven churches. There was churches all over Asia. So seven was chosen to give you another context. What it's saying is, these seven churches cover all the churches. Everything. It's a complete word to all of God's people, to all of God's church. Now, then, and in the times to come. This is why the warnings and the commendations are so important to us. We can see aspects of ourselves throughout the descriptions of the complete seven churches. However, for them and for us, the real focus is the one who is speaking to them. You will notice groups of seven throughout Scripture, throughout Revelation. They tell us that this is the complete story. This is the full picture. There is nothing else to follow It is the finish of all that God has always promised. Hence, you'll find at the end, it says, do not add anything to this. 
There is nothing to add. This is the complete picture. Each church letter opens with part of the description that John has already given of Jesus. So it sets in place, this is my letter to you. And actually, I'm going to encourage you with part of my description. To Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the seven lampstands. To Smyrna, from the one who is first and last, who was dead but is now alive, and so on. When we lose focus of the central message of Scripture about the end times, which is to endure in faithfulness to Jesus, it can be easy to drift off into flights of fantasy. I would suggest that the importance of continuing in our relationship with Jesus has more importance than trying to work out the manner of how the end will come. That's why we have visions of Jesus strategically placed in Revelation. In chapter 1, following the addresses to the churches in chapter 4, do not be be afraid, it's about me. And it's about my love, my concern, and the fact that I have history in my hands. Jesus describes himself as the firstborn from the dead. Which means that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. He is the sovereign Lord over all things, including death. He reigns as exalted Lord over all earthly rulers, all earthly kingdoms. Jesus is our example as the faithful witness, our hope for a future resurrection, and the object of our faith as the exalted Lord. Everything else is helpful detail. But the focus is on Jesus himself, the giver of the words and the fulfiller and the judge of all human history. And in the midst of all of the chaos or the seeming chaos of revelation, Jesus reigns over it all. Church, in the seeming chaos that we dwell in, that assail our lives, that assail our culture and our times, Jesus reigns. And that's what it's all about. Jesus reigns. Perhaps we should see how John describes himself to see, to see the true purpose of Revelation. Okay? And I'm just trying to really set this in stone because if we don't, Revelation just becomes a, oh, I'm going to pick up these details, I'm going to pick this out, and I'm going to make this say whatever I want. And we struggle in our humanity, with our human understanding, our human brains. We can't comprehend God. So what do we do? We make our own plans and purposes, which God has told us not to do, because his plans and purposes are higher. So Revelation 1 verse 9. This is John's words as he starts this description. He says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. And in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. He's not mincing his words. I am in prison. I'm exiled. I'm on this island because... I follow, speak up for, I'm determined to follow with all of my heart 
Jesus and I am going to give my testimony about him. And the Roman rulers do not like that. I'm surprised that they didn't just chop his head off. But God needed these words given to us. We are called to follow Jesus. We, are, we don't escape from these commands that John, that John says. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to make him known and we're called to give glory to him. And we persevere and endure suffering as we do it. Anyone here dare to say that actually being a Christian and declaring Jesus' name to their friends, family, workplace or anything else has been a piece of cake? Because it isn't, is it? In fact, we're, most of us, if we're very, very honest with each other, are in fear of telling people about Jesus for fear of what people will say to us. So we actually, we tone it down. We speak about Jesus when we're in this building together. But I think it might be a different story if we were kind of faced by a howling mob who were declaring Christ as being not real and not true and our emperor is the real God, I don't think we'd stand up and shout it out so bravely. But this is the circumstances we need to understand this happening in these churches. But also for us today, it's no different. We will endure suffering because John tells us, Jesus tells us, we won't go for an easy ride. This is a bit of a blow to those who falsely teach that coming to Jesus makes life easy. I will never declare to you that being a Christian and following Jesus gives you an easy life because it does not. But what it does do is gives you a hope and assurance that you will be with him forever when all of this mess goes away. I will promise you that. But I cannot promise you that Jesus will make your life easy. I'm not going to promise that Jesus will make you rich, that if you pray for riches, you'll get them. Because my Bible does not tell me that. It tells me that my security and my hope and my faith is in what will come. And it's my faith and belief in Jesus that will get me there. Jesus demands perseverance, not reinvention okay and I say that with the best of all of my love and gratitude to lots of things that go on in churches and in our church but sometimes what God expects us to do is to keep doing what we've always been doing since modern culture is deeply influenced by the notion of progress we sometimes assume that church needs to be doing new and different things to please God but often what God expects is for us to hang in there by doing what we've already been doing. Jesus mentions to the church in Thyatira four qualities, character qualities of a true believer. Revelation 2 verse 19 says, this is in the letter to that church, I have seen your love, your faith, your service and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. These are central character traits of the Christian faith. There is no need to move away from what is central even when it doesn't seem novel or cutting edge. We are called to love, have faith, to serve and endure.
In addressing the seven churches, Jesus uses the cultural settings and their situations to make this point. Broadly, the seven churches will be encouraged and warned in the following ways. Ephesus, love God with all of your heart and defend against false apostles who are amongst you. Smyrna, remain faithful in your suffering. Pergamum, do not tolerate false teachers. Sardis, wake up. You falsely believe that you're okay, but only a few persevere in my truth. Philadelphia, keep on persevering, my good and faithful servants. Laodicea, stop being indifferent, trusting in your own wealth and provision. We can't cover all of the aspects of the churches that the letters are sent to. And they are intended to be real letters. Therefore, the content has relevance, import, and levels of understanding to the actual audience at the time. I've said many times that Scripture cannot say something that it didn't mean at the time. Be very careful of taking Scripture out and going to apply, I'm going to apply my context, take it out of its original context, and make it mean something else. And that's a huge warning at the start of Revelation. Keep the context. Understand what it meant to the audience at the time. So let's look briefly at Laodicea as an example to help us understand the realities being addressed. Now we all know quotes from the church, the letter to the church in Laodicea. You'll all be able to throw me some quotes, even if you don't realize it's to the church in Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door. Brilliant. I would rather have you Because you are, and I will. See? Both extracts from the letter to the church in Laodicea. Brilliant. Now, what you need to know is this. Laodicea was a wealthy city. Because of where it was situated, it was situated on a main road linking Ephesus with Antioch in Syria. It was really, really wealthy. In fact, it was virtually destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD. And the local governors refused help from Rome to rebuild it. They said, we're wealthy enough to do this ourselves. So they rebuilt the city from their own coffers, from the people of the city, from the governance of the city, and they did not help ask help from Rome. And they were really proud of that. It was really a self-proficient city. And it was proud of it. However, much like the rich ruler that Jesus encountered in the Gospels, the true riches of being right with God were being spurned. Laodicea was also famed for its clothing manufacture. And it had a medical school there specializing in eye diseases. Now you're thinking, why am I telling you that? Because if you don't know that, you won't understand the letter that's being addressed and the things that are being addressed to them. So Jesus addresses their self-reliance head on. Listen to what he says to them. Revelation 3 verse 18. I advise you 
to buy gold from me. Gold that's been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so you will not be ashamed of your nakedness. He's addressing the fact that they actually are famous for their clothing. But listen to this bit. And ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. The people in Laodicea knew exactly what Jesus was addressing to them. Their self-reliance on their medical school, their self-reliance on the clothing they were making, their self-reliance on their wealth was being completely addressed by Jesus because he said, none of those things will get you anywhere. What you need is riches from me. What you need is your blind eyes to see. What you need is for you to be clothed with my righteousness, not your own garments. It also famously had no water supply of its own. Hence the often quoted Revelation 3 verse 15, which we've shouted out before. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Often this verse is used to question whether we have enough faith or spirituality. And I've never got it. I've never understood why a Bible which is written all about Jesus' love for us, all about God's concern for us, all about God saying, you need to follow me with all of your heart, would say, I would rather have you cold and away from me than being lukewarm and near me. Does that make sense to any of you? I'd rather have you hot or cold rather than lukewarm. And often that's been spiritualized to say, well, hot is being on fire. We're spiritually on fire. We want more of that. Fan into flames. The heat gets get hot. But what about the cold? Because that's equally as good, isn't it? I would rather have you hot or cold than lukewarm. It's always baffled me. It's always gone, that doesn't make sense. Why would God want you to be away from him and cold if that's what it means? So it's inconceivable that Jesus would rather have you cold or have no faith than to have some sort of faith, even if it's compromised. It can't mean this, even if it's a convenient tool for encouraging us to be on fire. The context reveals the real truth here. Just as knowing that the city had an eye hospital reveals the truth about Jesus' comments about blindness. Laodicea had no water supply. It instead relied on water from Heropolis, a few miles to the north. The water here came from hot springs, naturally hot springs, that were good for bathing in, good for health, good for well-being. They shipped it into Laodicea by an aqueduct. They shipped it from Heropolis down to Laodicea. By the time it got to Laodicea, via an aqueduct six miles away, the water was unclean and tepid at best, unfit for bathing in, and would make you sick and vomit if you drank it. Conversely, cold water from Colossae to the south was known to be refreshing, 
So the comp- comparison is being drawn between the two as Laodicea finds itself of the middle of these two water supplies. And it was so dependent on its own understanding and wealth that it didn't care about anything else. But when Jesus says these words to them, they would know. It would strike fear into them. We put up with stuff, and it makes us sick, and we know it. We drink this warm water, and it makes us sick. And here's Jesus saying, I'd rather have you hot or cold, but not lukewarm, not compromised, not not with me. What about the knocking of the door? You ever considered that? Jesus knocks on the door of a church that he can't get in. That's how he describes later here. Often we say that's Jesus knocking on the hearts of those who need to be saved by him. To a church, Jesus says, I stand outside the door and I'm knocking. Why don't you let me in? Let me in so I can make you whole. Remember that as churches read this, and as churches read this today, we should be looking at ourselves going, do we banish Jesus outside? Do we kind of push him outside and we're happy with what we do and it's actually, we're happy with who we are and what we are? Is Jesus standing outside the door going, will you let me in? It's interesting that Jesus referred to himself in the Gospels as being the water of life. Forget this tepid water that Laodicea is drinking and making themselves sick with. Here is the true water of life. And in the last words in Revelation, Jesus urges us to drink freely from this water of life. The church at Laodicea was compromised by its own wealth and stature of pandering to the Roman leaders. Jesus was warning them against their self-belief. If they weren't getting this, then Jesus actually drove this point home with his reference to being outside the door of the church and knocking. I urge you to read the first three chapters of Revelation in light of what we've done today. Ask yourself, what are the real situations that these churches found themselves in? And put things right because time is short and it still is Jesus says to them and to us do not be afraid I reign over chaos always have always will I am your hope and assurance of eternity nothing else and if we grasp that if we get that if we build our lives on that central pillar and assure our hearts of salvation and eternity, then the rest of what follows is not scary at all. Because it's instant and it takes us to the other side. So do not be afraid, Jesus says. As a central overarching statement over revelation, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am your hope and I am your assurance of eternity. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.